Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. On a mixtape just around the corner Did a lot in California Can't wait to drop this on you Yeah, they gon' have fun with that Smash like song and my songs Gon' break through like a running back Hello and welcome to the podcast That is always up to speed with Formula One My name is Mark Hamilton Joining me today, the one, the only The man, the myth, the legend My neighbor, my colleague, my frenemy Mr. Mark Daly Mr. Daly, how are you? I'm doing good. Thank you, sir. Ready for another race weekend. It's been a nice quiet week at home for once with the kids on spring break. So getting to spend some time with the family and just relaxing, which is something that we really, really all needed. But you look a little bit, you look like you've been through a bit of a situation <laughs> today. Do you, do you care? Do you, do you want to share with the, with the rest I of us do, what happens? I do. And I don't think our listeners are going to be interested, but it might, it might, <laughs> it might be something that impacts them in the future. So today, Drake's new tour, which was announced just a couple of days ago, tickets went on sale. And a friend got me the pre-sale code, got the code, logged into the site, expecting the prices to be ranging from about 78 to 400 bucks, which is what they were in what they were supposed to be. I log into the site and the cheapest ticket is 400 bucks in the nosebleeds. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my something, God, something weird about this. So I logged out, logged back in. They're at $600. The cheapest tickets were now <gasps> $600. And it turns out that Ticketmaster and the concert promoters had activated dynamic pricing, which means that the pricing of the tickets increases based on the demand on the site. So if there's thousands of people flooding the site trying to buy tickets, they just keep ratcheting up the price automatically until it hits a threshold where this ticket stops selling. So I gave up. I tapped out. I'm not paying $600 for ticket. It turns out, though, that they finally peaked at about $1,000 per ticket in the nose oh my here God. in Vancouver before, before it sold out. So it sold out. The tickets are gone. They did add, and thanks to some of our listeners that reached out, they did add some additional shows to the tour, but I expect they're going to be equally as expensive. And this is something that I understand Formula One races are now starting to do as well, which is they're instituting, I think last year, the British Grand Prix did this at Silverstone, but again, dynamic pricing. So here's where the pricing will start. You know where the pricing is going to start, but you don't know what you're potentially going to pay until you get into the site and you get through that queue. But a little, little discouraging. Now, as long as the money goes to Drake and not Ticketmaster, <laughs> I, I guess I'll make peace with that, but a little bit disappointed. Other than that, though, happy that it's a Formula One Grand Prix weekend to wash away, wash away those painful memories of earlier today. Yeah, I know. It just it, it bugs me in general because I mean, it just seems that it doesn't matter if it's concert tickets to potato chips to gas. It just seems oh, that yes, we're, yes. Formula One ticket. You know, it just seems we're getting gouged like on every single way that we turn right now, and it it just it's just really really my, frustrating my and discouraging. Of inflation is historically at at Walmart here in Canada. You could buy three bags of Doritos for seven bucks. It's a promo. Then it became three for eight. 
then three for nine, and now it's three for 10. So yeah. you know inflation is crazy when I've been priced out <laughs> of the Doritos game. I'm out. I've tapped out. I've got to go for those knockoff alternatives. You know, oh God, you know, like uh, I, I was a little bit uh, you know, disappointed to hear your story about like not getting Drake concert tickets because like, but then I'm like, yeah, he'll get over that because that is kind of like a premium kind of like thing. But I mean, Doritos, man, now, that's below the belt. That's hitting, hitting someone. <laughs> that's hitting everyone like, yeah, in society. That's hitting yeah. everyone in society. <laughs> this, this is a hit that, that, that we're all going to take together. That's, that's actually quite uh, depressing. I actually hadn't noticed, but like everyone else, I've just noted my grocery bill going up and up and up and up up it seems every single week but unlike you i guess i haven't found the ceiling for my dorito habit yet so <laughs> <laughs> anyways let's uh, let's move on anyways big shout out to jt the human the incredible artist that created that incredible intro track for the the, the podcast if you like the race weekend magazine uh, check in with and use our 10 percent uh, promo code scootery f1 or sorry scootery pod then uh, that'll help you save 10 percent on a yearly subscription that is the raceweekend.com and that is race weekend r-a-c-k sorry r-a-c-e-w-k-n-d.com and fourth anniversary of legendary formula one race director charlie whiting as you said uh, before he was by beloved by one and all the complete opposite of michael massey who everyone couldn't wait to see disappear quickly enough from formula but sad uh, anniversary marking um, charlie's passing so let's go now quickly to oh let's do some reviews and ratings we got an apple podcast spotify etc Got a whole bunch, so I want to read out a, a couple of them. First one comes from F89 Red on Apple Podcasts, and there's uh, their review is best podcast for everything F1. The hosts do an amazing job of keeping up with all the F1 news and present the information. I know you got a couple you want to read off too there, Hammy. Yeah, a couple. So one, thank you again for the reviews. Like we said, they mean the world to us. We treasure them. One of the ones that I really loved here, and I love them all, but I thought this one was adorable. The M&M of F1 podcast. We all know that M&Ms are the best candy, and we all know that M&M hosts the best F1 podcast. Mark and Mark, that is. Their great insights into the sport is, however, not what sets them apart. It's their great dynamic, their clear friendship and respect for each other, and their ability to talk openly, etc. And it goes on with some other lovely, lovely comments, but I thought that one was adorable because I love M&Ms and I have to ask you because people think we get along well and we're really good friends. I don't know mm. if that's the case off off the air. We don't look at each other. <laughs> we don't text each other. This is all an act. This is all a stage act. But do you do you also like M&Ms? And if so, which are your favorite kind? Oh my God, I love M&Ms. My favorite are the peanut butter ones. And then it's it's really a toss up just between my mood if I would just go for the for the milk chocolate ones or the peanut ones. But if 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 I have to think about it, I probably would go more for the chocolate ones than peanuts. Peanuts is like when I need like a nice crunch because you get like the double crunch, right? You get like the the crunch from the candy shell, and then you get that double crunch as you bite into that peanut. You know they they re, you know M and M's are just the best. You know like uh, I you know you know how you get like those big Costco size bags, which you know like it's about the size of like of a five pound bag of sugar. I, I'm sure I would be the only one that would go through one of those, like if they were just sitting here next to me. They're 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 lethal that way. But love, how I about you? you. I hear you. I love M&M's as well. One of my favorite things about going to the US in the olden days was you used to be able to get white chocolate M&M's. So peanut oh, yeah. M&M's yep, yep. with the white chocolate on the outside. It looks like they've discontinued it, which is so sad. But I think I love the peanut butter because I love everything peanut butter. Can't have it in my diet because I can't afford the calories. But I think on a day-to-day basis, my go-to M&M would be milk chocolate covered peanut. Not almond. I don't like the almond ones, but the milk chocolate covered peanuts. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't think we're going to disagree too much on that. I didn't. I, I don't remember the white chocolate ones. Anyways, different conversation for a different day. Also, big uh, shout out and thanks to Ken Snyder on Island, longtime clone, uh, Cole Beanink, which who wrote the the very nice M M&M and M one, and then Dixie Shellfish, and then Mister Coffee, Mister Coffee. You know that I, I thought that was you know my nickname. Apparently, I got beaten to it, but <laughs> it's all good. So thank you, uh, one and all, for those kind reviews and those ratings, and it really does. Uh, mean a mean a lot to us so hammy um before we get into the news fantasy uh update we've got one race in the bag i'm in the bottom third of fantasy so far because my team really was horrible in bahrain a couple of weeks ago hoping for a turnaround this weekend but um, l- let's hear who did well after round one of the first formula one race well, for of starters- the season I love your attitude that you're not giving up. We've got 22, 21, I can't even remember. We've got 20 plus Grand Prix left. So I'm don't the Charles give up. Leclerc don't of, give of up. Formula One yes, fantasy. You DNF. <laughs> First week you DNF because you're terrible choices, but yeah. you can battle back. Take a quick look at the top 15. We have two people tied at first. Long Ships and Fire Ferrets with 371 points. Number three, FRDPF1, 368. Number four, CDP Racing, 366. Number four, also JHAM0528, 366. Also tied at number four, Olay's Lina's, 366. Number four, also Phil's F1 Team 2 at 366. Number eight, Sausage Curb, 361. Tied at number eight, Pat Vent 2, 361. Number 10, Bam, 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 359. Number 11, Selma's better half at 355. I have a sneaking suspicion that might be the better half of one of the managers at my work, but I do not know. Number 12, (laughs) Brooklyn Bagel Race Club, 353. Number 13, Tyson VO2 at 352. Number 13, also Gentle Walter, 352. And then finally, rounding out the top 15, Stroud Racing with 349. I have to give Danny this one a, a shout out to. Number 16, Danny's Leftover Nuts is 346. (laughs) <laughs> that's 16th place i love it yeah you know like, like i say I'm the, I'm the charles leclerc of f1 fantasy it will be like 20 races into this thing where like yeah there's still a mathematical chance that i can win it but i mean in reality it's never going to happen but i'm going to cling on to that to that that air of positivity that uh it, <laughs> that i can still win it anyways uh, over to the the actual world championship standings on the driver's side after one race max verstappen from red bull uh, leading the championship with 25 points ahead of his uh, Red Bull teammate Sergio Perez. Third is Aston Martin driver Fernando Alonso with 15 points. Number four in the Drivers' Championship is Carlos Sainz from Ferrari, rounding out the top five. The GOAT, Lewis Hamilton, has currently 10 points. Now, moving on over to the Constructors' uh, Championship after one race, Red Bull leading the Constructors with 43 points ahead of Aston Martin, who have uh, 23 points. Mercedes currently third in the Constructors with 16. Ferrari is fourth and rounding out the top five in the Constructors uh, Championship is Alfa Romeo. They have four points. Okay, so let me pull up the... I, I know where we're going. We're going to go... We're, we're going to talk about Haas and this horrible situation that appears to be potentially a bit of a hit job. So, Hammy, when you sent me this the other day, I was... I you know, I'm not kidding. When I read it, that like Hass Automation was alleged to have been selling audio CNC machinery or whatever it was to you know to to Russia and you know and, and I was just I was appalled. I was literally nause- nauseated when I heard that because it just uh, was it just seemed like such an opportunist, such a, a low thing to do. 
considering you know the, the whole situation, the war in Ukraine and all that. But now it seems that the the dust has had a chance to settle. That you know, and, and we've been critical about Hass over the years on this podcast, and and I I think rightly and fairly so. But and and I was just like you know. Uh, all those sort of like negative, I don't, I don't even want to say stereotypes, but all the negative things that I felt like we had sort of talked about, like over the years, is just like, well, of course they would do this too. But now it appears that they actually haven't done anything wrong. So this seems to be a bit of a poorly reported story. So why don't you pick it up from there, please? Yeah, I think you did a really great job of teeing this up. And and I had the same very visceral reaction when I saw this that you did. Mm -hmm. But earlier this week, PBS reported that Haas Automation, whose founder also started the Haas F1 team, quote unquote, may have sent high-end manufacturing machines to Russia long after the sanctions were enacted, of course, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And I think it's probably key to back it up a little bit and describe a little bit about what Haas Automation does. And Haas Automation develops manufacturers, uh, supports, uh, repairs, like you described, CNC machinery. So they are vital in the manufacturing industry, machining parts, machining components. It can be used for developing weaponry and brackets and and repairing war machinery. Like they are incredibly valuable machines. And Haas is a global company and they have been shipping machinery global. But what PBS reported was that Following the enactment of the sanctions, that Haas allegedly knowingly continued to ship parts to a Russian company that was acting as a distributor to Russian markets. And by all accounts, they had shipped components right from March through October worth a total sum of $2.8 million. So in total, apparently between March and October of 2022, 18 shipments totaling a value of $2.8 million. However, Haas hit back, and they hit back hard with a statement saying, on Tuesday, March 14th, PBS ran a story alleging that Haas Automation has directly provided machines and parts to Russia in violation of U.S. export control and sanctions regulations. That story is simply false, both in its overall impression and many of its particular statements. Key points from Haas include, Haas is and always has been in full compliance with U.S. government export control. No machines have shipped from the Haas factory to Russia since March 3rd of 2022. The 18 machines referenced in the story left the Haas factory prior to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Haas voluntarily chose to terminate its relationship with the Russian distributor, which has never been required by any U.S. sanctions. And Haas completely supports Ukraine and its people in their defense against Russia. Now, the allegations that were being reported by PBS come from the Economic Security Council of Ukraine and writes Road and Track, the ESCU is an independent watchdog organization, quote unquote, responsible for identifying and countering internal external threats to economic security in Ukraine, according to its website. It often publishes information related to companies and countries that are skirting sanctions on Russia. So I think my opinion on this is if there is the smallest shred of truth to this, then I think absolutely Haas has to feel the absolute wrath of US law. But at the same time, if the reporting is inaccurate, PBS absolutely has to be held accountable for this because this is a significant, I like that term you used a little bit earlier, like it's a pretty significant hit job on the reputation of of Haas. And I think oftentimes Haas doesn't get the benefit of the doubt simply because, well, their founder is in an 
in and of himself a felony, which is why he can't travel to most Formula One Grand Prix. So they don't get that benefit of the doubt. I also just, I can't imagine any American-based company would take on the liability and the risk of skirting sanctions for what's a meaningless $2.8 million. Like, logistical administrative error. These things were already in transit. You couldn't recall them. You could like, I'm sure that's a possibility, but I just, I can't believe. And again, if it's true, full force of the full force of the law, but I just, I can't believe they would knowingly assume that risk. What, What do you think, man? Yeah, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, the way that they, they came back and, you know, th- that, um, that, uh, that, you know, that full explanation that is on the, uh, on the, the Haas corporate website it's extensive and right, it right. seems it, it's it seems very transparent and you know, my my gut reaction is if you had something to hide why would you throw that much stuff out there that you know wouldn't it be better to maybe kind of like throw like a very you know vague statement out there with some you know legalese that that really doesn't address anything right uh, but I, I just kind of like wonder now like, like like what's the next step you have to think that when tensions and emotions are high, it's things it's things like this that people will remember, regardless what what the situation is. I mean, you can take the war in Ukraine and this Hass story as as one example, but but just take any emotionally charged situation, people will remember these things, you know, rightly or wrongly, true or false. So you know, the the next thing I wonder, you know, if um, you know. Either PBS they double down on their story and maybe they can corroborate it, or they withdraw. Uh, they withdraw it. I mean, if they you know, with with or retract that story and issue an apology, you know that that might be one thing. Or is the next thing that we hear that that maybe Hass launches like a lawsuit against them? So it it will be something to watch over the the, the days ahead because I. You know, the, the thing that I kind of struggle with is that it, it seems that at least on the surface that it seems like it's it's poorly sourced. But I mean, this isn't like some sort of like citizen, you know, detective, some web sleuth sort of digging up dirt on on them. I mean, you know, PBS, I mean, you know, at least to to my mind is a fairly credible media outlet. Right. So I, I just kind of. I and I asked myself like, well, what is their kind of their editorial process? You know, like, you know, how did they vet the sources and corroborate? You know, did they have any corroborating substantiation or to the story itself? So I think there's there's more to come on this. It's kind of like really blown up in the couple of days, and it's now this sort of intermediate kind of like period that kind of has me sitting on the edge of my seat to see either who blinks first or what, what happens next. So it's, it, it, you know, out of everything, I shouldn't say that nothing surprises me anymore because I, I, I feel like in the last three years, it's just like, Oh, well, you know, now that's happened. We never thought that would ever happen ever, but it's happened now. And then, so a part of me like kind of expects the unexpected, but even, you know, to my cynical Gen X eyes, that <laughs> this kind of came out of left field and was, was a real shocker. I'm just glad we had the opportunity to let the story settle for a few days because if we'd recorded on Wednesday or Tuesday, for instance, we wouldn't have had the response from Haas and we effectively would have been, we would have in a sense spreading the the PBS story. And of course, no other news outlet has corroborated at this point. And that's something I would typically look for is, has anyone else corroborated Great the story? Is anyone yep. else reporting yep. this? And nobody is. Nobody's touching it. People are referencing the fact that PBS has, has shared the story, but 
All that said, I'm glad we got the heavy story out of the way. I'm glad we had the opportunity for Has to, has to respond. But I think you're right. That this won't be the last that we hear of this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so stay tuned. Uh, maybe by the time we do the, the, the race wrap-up on Sunday night, there might be some development. So this one uh, I would expect to keep going. Anyways, why don't we just break a little early here, uh, Mark, and then we'll come back because now we're going to get into some fun stuff. And this next one is the ultimate, oh, yeah. I think, F1 toy that, you know, if I had the money for it, I've already got the place for it in my basement. If, even if it means I have to, like, move out half the stuff in my basement, I would absolutely love to have this. We'll that's tell a you great what that, that's a great tease. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I'm getting good at this after, was it 421 episodes? I'm finally learning my, my craft here. Anyways, time for a quick break, guys. Back on the flip side. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back to Scuderia F1. Mark Daly, Mark Hamilton here, breaking down and going over the latest news from the Formula One paddock this week. So the next one, this is a cool one. So Red Bull are auctioning or selling off a um, an RB18 show car simulator. This is going to go on sale via F1 Authentics for, what was it, about $170,000 or something like that? Yeah, it, it looks pretty, pretty cool. So basically, um, it, what it looks like, it looks like the front of the car minus the wheels, but it's got the front wing, it's got the nose, it's got the cockpit, it's got the the, the side pods dressed up full in the, uh, in, in the Red Bull livery. It's got the nice big monitors on the front. So if you've ever wanted a full Formula One simulator, this is it. 175000 sorry, 175 Five, sorry, I can't say it. $170,000. You can choose your livery, either Max Verstappen or Sergio Perez. And I love if you go to the F1Authentics.com website, you know, you can go and add it to your cart here. You can choose, like I say, your, your livery. You can, you know, you get to go over all these uh, different ones. Thing. It says right at the very end, it says, quote, this is an incredible opportunity for F1 fans to feel like a racing ace themselves and bring the thrill of F1 to you sigh i wish i wish mark i really wish that we could do that. <laughs> there is 
There is a cheaper option though. So there's actually two versions of this racing simulator. There is what they call the Champions Edition, which is exactly yes. as you describe the cockpit, the front wing. And then there is also, and I'm going to pull it up here real quick. There is also the Race Edition, which is functionally the same thing but it doesn't have the front wing so it's a little bit more compact it can fit into a smaller space but both of them feature a huge curved 49 inch tv a dedicated chassis plate they both come with working adjustable gaming pedals the steering wheel they come with quote unquote the latest gaming hardware so we don't really know which computer is being packed in there but apparently it's going to be a good one your choice of livery max verstappen or sergio perez very cool. I'm hoping I would love a little bit more information on the materials of the tub of the car. Is it carbon fiber? Because it looks carbon fiber, but ultimately very, very cool, but also very pricey. Like you said, for that Champions Edition, it starts at $170,000. I also looked into shipping. Uh, shipping to the US is about $20,000 and shipping to Canada <laughs> is about $19,000. So all in all, this uh, very cool flex piece comes into a little under two hundred thousand dollars so if well, that, you've got that's the money just outrageous i'm not going for the champions edition i'm only going to go for the show car simulator the race edition or whatever it is yep i'm that you know that that only is going to cost me about uh, i would say about one hundred forty-five thousand dollars taxes yep. and shipping yep. all in but the thing is too like if you buy this thing the shipping the shipping delivery time within europe within the eu three to five days overseas four to six weeks i'll have lost interest by then i mean come on <laughs> you, it shows up outside your house on a crate and you're like i don't even remember what this is <laughs> honey did you order something from totally. red bull for one hundred forty-five thousand dollars? by the way yeah, shipping be, within yeah. the uk is only 500 pounds shipping within the uk really? is only 500 pounds so it's probably going to go wow. to somebody there but overall a very cool and a nice light story to uh pivot away from the the story we started the show with well, you know, like if you kind of go through some of the other Red Bull official merch, if you go through the F1Authentics.com website, if you don't want to drop like, a, you know, 200 large on a Champions Edition RB18 simulator, why not just uh, drop two and a half thousand dollars and get a 2022 official replica Halo for, uh, for, for your Red Bull? So you can buy the Halo, you know, for only two and a half grand. So maybe that's the slightly, what, what am I talking about? Well, that, that's not, that's still not even an option, you know, like, uh, you know, we can't do the Sims. We can't do the Halos. We're definitely not getting Drake tickets. We've even been priced out of the Doritos market hammy. We, we have almost nothing left. If they take away our M&Ms, that's it, buddy. I, I'm done. <laughs> I am done. I feel you. I feel you. <laughs> Anyways, uh, joking aside, well, I guess it's not really joking aside. Okay. So the next uh, story that that we had uh, is okay. So, um, oh, this was a good one here. Where did I put it up? So it was uh, about the spending war on sustainable fuels. Uh, where did my, uh, here it goes in my feed. Okay. So formula one, they, they, they really feel that they can, mitigate or they've they've downplayed the risk of what they call an expensive laboratory arms race between different fuel suppliers when it comes to the switch from you know i guess what you could call traditional fuel which we see going into the cars which is not what you get when you go down the street to your local shell station or your bp or whatever it is uh to these new more exotic uh, sustainable fuels which you and i have been probably talking about as we've heard little bits and pieces over the past a couple of years. Now, I, I find this interesting because 
whenever something new comes into formula one it seems that there's there's a lot of effort into that goes into design and research and all that uh, stuff but i i don't know mark do you believe these claims that they can cap this sort of like unrestricted you know you know like what they call like an arms race to develop the perfect new sustainable fuel for formula one i i'm i'm skeptical i'm skeptical yeah fascinating story and it's probably not something that i'm probably the most well versed on because my assumptions less so about lubricants but more around fuel was that fuel is highly standardized standardized consumable in a formula one car and as i understand it today when we're talking about the fuel that is poured into these cars it's effectively supposed to be the exact same blend, although teams have the ability to source that blend from different suppliers. And I think I think what this article is speaking to is this fear and F1 chief technical offer Pat Simons is desperately trying to play down this this uh this fear, but this fear that in the new world with the new technical regulations, teams will, will have more creative license to develop develop these synthetic fuels and that ultimately there could be a massive spending war that teams engage in to develop the best possible blends to use in their car. And, and it's interesting because on the one hand, yeah, like it kind of makes sense that they would have that creative freedom. But on the other hand, this is a very, very, very expensive, complex industry to work in. And asking teams to develop their own blends and their own fuels, especially in a space that is highly, it is, I shouldn't say immature, but a space that isn't as mature as some of the other industries that Formula One teams dabble in. It seems like it's hugely problematic. Pat says, and there's a couple of interesting quotes here, and he says about this because, uh, People are asking this question, but he says, we've thought a lot about it quite, he's sorry, we've thought about it quite a lot, actually, he says, in terms of there being the threat of a dangerous and very expensive arms race. And he quotes, and right from the start, Aramco has been very involved with advising us on how to formulate these fuels and indeed have made many candidate fuels for us to test and to understand the sensitivities of various things. I think the fundamental answer lies in the fact that we move from a mass flow to an energy flow. If we stayed on a mass flow, I think there was every reason, even within the very carefully formulated regulations, to believe that someone may have been able to do that. But if you're limited on energy, then in simple terms, it is converting that energy into power that matters and you won't run away with things. He continues, there are nuances to that, and there's more to a good fuel than just what the energy content is. There are all sorts of things. It's volatility, it's flame speed. There are all sorts of things that define a good fuel. But if anything, I think what we've done and what we really concentrated on is opening up the process and regulating the final content. And I think it maybe politicians had done that when they're talking about how to decarbonize the world and let the engineers define the process rather than dictating what that process should look like. I think we'd be in a much better place right now. The regulations have been very very carefully designed such that we can really promote different methods of producing these fuels. This is a very, very new technology. And finally, he says, there are many different ways of producing fuels and no one is yet sure exactly which is the best way. So we've written the rules very carefully to try to promote the competition to produce fuels in different manners. And yet at the same time, not to produce a fuel that will be a runaway for whoever does it best. The free competition in manufacturing the fuel we believe will lead to the best product that can possibly be available for the general public to use in the mid 2020s on and just imagine your 1.4 billion vehicles on the road powered by a fuel that does not destroy our atmosphere. It also doesn't rely on scarce materials. It doesn't force children and labor in unsafe conditions for pittance wages to produce the minerals that are required for some of the batteries and is a fuel that offers a viable parallel pathway to electrification. So I, I guess what he's saying here is 
Yes, teams are going to have some creative license in developing their fuels and their blends, but ultimately the regulations are still so tight and they're written in such a way that there isn't enough creative license that one specific team can spend a fortune and develop a blend that is so far better than anyone else's that it would create this competitive disparity. So very interesting, but it's also very interesting. One, his comment about global politicians driving the agenda and not letting scientists drive the agenda. And and also, furthermore, the fact that they hope that what the teams develop and what the sport develops collaboratively can be shared with the consumer market and brought to traditional re- residential retail, but to traditional passenger cars, which is very, very cool, that trickle-down technology. Yeah, absolutely. The Mark, I was going to ask you, I was going to try to bring your attention to that, but uh, you got there on your own and you 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 nailed it. Uh, I, I think that uh, this is is very very cool because as you say trickle down technology, that's kind of like one of those buzz phrases that we hear quite a bit when it comes to Formula 1 and road relevance and all that stuff. And I mean, let's face it, we 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 most of us will have like ABS in our cars, uh, traction control, you know, or paddle shift, you know, semi-automatic uh, gear shift and, and cool things like that. And and that does have its roots, its genesis in Formula One. But but nowadays, I mean, very little what we see on the, the these cars are more like F-16s than they are yeah. to like to, to your, your Tiguan or my Mitsubishi Outlander. You know, they're, they're I mean, yeah, they got four tires, you know, and they've, they've got like a body and an engine. So, you know, the, the, you know, the comparison that we could draw between our road vehicles and Formula One cars are very, very few. But if they could do this and then have this this spin-off effect that you know that that it could be a real benefit to society in general i think that that would be absolutely amazing if they could do it and and i love that one sort of key takeaway from his, where where simon says quote and just imagine your 1.4 billion vehicles on the road powered by a fuel that does not destroy our atmosphere and then he goes on to say that um, that that it is a fuel that offers a viable parallel i think that's the the key word there viable parallel pathway to electrification so i think obviously from what he's saying is that electrification full electrification is obviously the end game for not just formula one but for you know road vehicles as well for private vehicles like mine and yours and whosoever's uh whomever's but uh, again we, we we've talked about it before that you know how long is it going to take to get there, and 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 what's it going to take? Because there is going to be this this crossover period, be it in Formula One, or be it here and the rest of you know in the real world, for for lack of a better term, that it's just going to have to be that crossover time in, in between. And this this is very cool. I, I can't wait to see where this goes. I get a little bit kind of excited when it comes to some of this nerdy stuff, and I'm kind of interested to see because i thought that was quite a shot across the bow where you say you know let the scientists let the engineers do their job and define what the reality is rather than politicians dictating the framework in which they have to achieve and i was just like ooh, it's like hey pat why don't you tell us how you really feel so he didn't hold anything back there <laughs> loved it loved which it. i think is good yeah 
Okay, so the next one where we're going to talk about now is a very sad story. This goes back to 1982. This is um, Gilles Villeneuve and Didier Peroni, and this will be told in a new documentary film almost 40 years later, and it isn't really something that is, uh, you know, really has gone away for either of the, uh, the, the, the families. I still remember when Gilles Villeneuve died in 1982. And I was a really small kid at the time. And I remember going out on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning, whatever it is, with my parents for breakfast. And we were sitting in the car. And this is back in the day where you did get live races. You know, like I I think they were broadcast on CBC. They were extended highlights. And I just remember we got into the car. I don't know what, uh, you know, my dad was listening to. He was listening to the radio. And and Gilles was, you know, beloved. And, you know, he was a hero. And, you know, you know, Canadian as well. And it, it came over the radio that he'd been killed at, uh, in an accident as Zolder. I mean, if you see the footage for that, oh my God, what, what a horrible, horrible accident that was. I mean, the way that Gilles' car just, uh, you know, launches into the air and just... You know, I don't want to talk more about it. But anyway, so there's going to be a documentary coming out about this. So, Hammy, over to you. Tell us a little bit more what's going on here. So Sky Sports in the UK is releasing or possibly has now released a documentary documenting really the the circumstances leading up to that fateful 1982 season. And they spend an awful lot of time interviewing family members and close relatives of both of those story drivers. And they really paint a picture of what was a Initially, a incredible, powerful friendship between Gilles and Peroni. And of course, those two drivers started the 1982, te- 1982 season racing for Ferrari. And in 1982, there is every expectation that Ferrari would win the constructors and they would win a driver's title. And the two of them were incredibly close friends until a fateful day at the 1982 San Marino Grand Prix. The two were under team orders to effectively finish the race 1-2 with Gilles taking the race victory. And at the very last moment on one of the very last corners, uh, Peroni sped past Gilles and took the race win. And from that moment forward, Gilles refused, refused to acknowledge him or display any sense of friendship towards him. Unfortunately, that period of um, trauma in their relationship quickly came to an end because just weeks later at the Belgian Grand Prix in a bid to best Peroni's qualifying time, of course, as you described, Gilles Villeneuve was was killed, which is hugely unfortunate and one of the dark, dark moments in the history of the sport. Now, the story gets even darker for Ferrari because later that season, while leading the driver's championship, Peroni himself suffered an accident in Germany at the German Grand Prix during practice when he attempted to overtake a car in the spray, in the rain, not realizing there was a car in front of him and hit the rear massively mangling both of his legs and ending his Formula One career. Now, despite missing the final four races of that championship, he still only finished second in the championship by five points. Of course, that was the year that Nico Rosberg's dad, KK Rosberg, won the championship. But obviously, that was a byproduct of the fact that Ferrari lost not one, but both of their drivers in that season. And the documentary is really about uh, establishing what the structure of their friendship was, how the 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 friendship so quickly evaporated, and then the fallout from both the death of Gilles and the fateful end of Peroni's career as well. So I'm very interested in seeing it. I think uh, I think it's going to be somewhere along the line of Senna and the Michael Schumacher documentary that, of course, we talked about last year. By all accounts, there is some pretty, and you described it a couple of minutes ago. There is some pretty. Um, 
I would say, sensitive footage, particularly of Gilles' crash. And I haven't seen it before, um, but by all accounts, it's not pretty. And it was not unlike the the documentary, the Michael Schumacher documentary, where they showed the Senna crash, which I, I was hugely shocked to see. But uh, they include some shocking footage as well. But uh, should be good in Canada. It's going to be available on Crave. So Crave is going to pick it up here. And the date hasn't been announced, but I understand in the US it's going to be picked up by HBO Max at some point during the 2023 calendar year. Oh, okay, cool. That that that's good to know. I mean, yeah, you mentioned like a Schumacher and the Senna documentaries as well. Yeah, I my brother gave me the DVD for the Senna one because it, it it's been out for what ten years? Oh, yeah, at least longer. a decade. Yeah, it, it, it it's been out for a long, long time. I remember that after it came out, he bought me the Blu-ray, the DVD, whatever it was, and you know, you kind of go through it. I mean, you know that. The whole lead up, and, and it's done by the same people, you know, box to box film that have done uh, Drive to Survive. And, you know, this was kind of, uh, you know, the, one of their first efforts into it. And I found it such a powerful and moving documentary. It was on Netflix for a, yeah. a, a while as well, because I went back and I watched it uh, several years ago. I streamed it on uh, on Netflix. And it was great to watch all this old footage of Senna and, you know, throughout his career and some of the, uh, you know, the tense moments that uh, that he had when, you know, with, the, with Prost and everything. But, you know, with that, you know, that San Marino Grand Prix to Imola in, in 1994, I, I, I just cannot get past that. You know, that when they threw that into the, the, the Schumacher documentary that came out, was it two years ago, three years ago, whatever it is, you know, I, I, I could never watch the entirety of the Senna documentary when they put that into the Schumacher documentary that, that was very, very difficult to kind of keep pushing through watching that one as well you know i just have never been able to 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 fully get over that so anyways uh, but yeah so watch out for that on uh, for crave up here in canada hbo max down in the states for didier peronia and gilles villeneuve the documentary definitely uh, would be a, a good one to watch okay um, oh, time for another break. Let's uh, pause here for a second. We'll come back. And uh, Williams has made another announcement of things happening over there at Grove. And we'll find out in a moment what's happening. So don't go away. We'll be right back. All right. Welcome back to the show. So, yes, more news coming out of uh, Williams uh, out of their headquarters in Grove this week. Certainly a lot of things, you know, it's, it's finally good news. Yeah, I, I think, you know, for, for the longest time, it's just been kind of meh or no, oh, that's not a good look for, for Williams. I mean, especially when they parted, you know, was a mutually parted ways with their former team principal, Yas Capito, just before Christmas last year. Um, but ever since uh, they've appointed their new team principal, formerly of Mercedes, James Voles, it, things have slowly but surely been going up. I mean, they had a pretty good outing in Bahrain the other week. We had, uh, or we saw Alex Albon in the points, Logan sergeant the rookie american driver just missing out on a points finish in his debut coming back or what did he finish p12 or something like that anyways they've announced this week that frederick brosseau will join their team as the new chief operating officer so he started his career at pratt whitney in canada and the company that mainly makes aircraft engines for civil and military aviation applications he had a a number of manual managerial roles there and then was appointed vice president of Pratt & Whitney in April 2022. And then he also took charge of many of their employee health and safety uh, programs. So interesting uh, that, uh, you know, that's a bit of a, 
<laughs> I think it's kind of a, an interesting parallel because you know, we were talking about like the the new sustainable fuels. So I made the comp that uh, the Formula One car is more like a jet fighter than it is a a road car. It's kind of interesting that the new COO for Williams is a guy that uh, has been at Pratt and Whitney, a, an engine manufacturer for civil and military aircraft. So that that's uh, kind of interesting. But Hammy, I mean. I don't know a lot about uh, Brousseau's uh, resume, but just let, let's just talk in, in broad strokes here in general terms. I've been following him on TikTok for five years. You don't follow him on TikTok? <laughs> I joke. I joke. But I, I would just say that I, I like, by the way, your point earlier about the fact that it feels like we're talking about better news stories related to the Williams team. And I think that this is a concrete step towards demonstrating to the world how aspirational they're being. And I think that team principal acquisition for Mercedes a couple of months ago was really solid. And I think he's going to be in a position now where he can really focus on the craft of putting together a race car. And and I think in this case, this gentleman's real core is going to be looking after the economic viability of the operation as a whole. I I did pick up also a, a really interesting quote here that kind of ties into that spirit of aspirationalism. But new team principal was asked earlier this week about his relationship with Mercedes and their intent on using Mercedes power long-term because, of course, they've been using the Mercedes power unit since 2014, since the beginning of the turbo hybrid era. And, of course, they are hoping to lock down a supplier for the 2026th and onwards period. But he had a couple of really interesting quotes earlier this week that I thought were really cool and I wanted to read them. But he says, clearly, we're really happy with the relationship that's been in place for many years with Mercedes. Mercedes have produced fundamentally the best power, the best average power unit across the last 15 years. To win championships, you look at who's won it. Typically, it's original equipment manufacturers, and you need to be manufacturer-backed. And that's the difficult pathway that we have to fight on the way. I think for now, we have a realistic target on our shoulders. At some point, you have to be in charge of your own destiny, and you're simply not when you rely on someone else providing you parts. A simple example of it, as good as the components are, you don't know what your aerodynamic decision will be until very late. And it's normally dominated by the decision of the manufacturer's circumstances, how we've got bigger fish to fry at the moment. So I think it's really interesting that they're openly having conversations now about their ongoing dependence on Mercedes. So we know Mercedes supplies their power unit, but they also buy a whole bunch of other transferable components from Mercedes. But I think the fact that they're bringing in heavyweights like like their new team principal and they're bringing on new big heavyweights like their new CEO means that Dalton's serious about putting this organization in place. I think the last major thing that I need to see from this team is a willingness to invest in the facilities in a meaningful way. But I like the fact that they're openly questioning the current strategy, which is to basically buy every conceivable part they can for Mer- or for Mercedes because that's a cost-effective way of assembling a Formula One road car. But I also like these comments because they, they reinforce what I've said for so long, which is if you depend on a works team, a manufacturer, an OEM to supply you with parts, so much of your decision-making comes late and so much of your decision-making is influenced by the nature of the components that are being provided whose design is of the circumstance of the manufacturer that builds them. So very interesting story and some exciting stuff happening at Williams. And then the only other comment that I'll quickly touch on here too is Williams is also openly speaking to the fact that this is still very much a building year for them, not necessarily a tanking year in the in the spirit of NBA dialogue, but certainly that they don't have <laughs> huge expectations for this year, but that I would expect that while they'll 
be reasonably competitive and they'll score some pretty consistent points finishes. I suspect based on the things that I've said that they'll continue to invest the bulk of this year's budget into next year's car, that they're not going to spend a lot of money on the 2024 challenger or the 2023 challenger that whatever budgets available to them will be 24, 25. And it sounds as though they're really targeting the FW 46 and the FW 47, the successors to this year's FW 45 as cars that will be much, much more, much more competitive. But again, good news stories coming out of Grove for the first time in a very long time. Well, yeah, I mean, the the announcement of new CEO, the fact that, uh, you know, all those things that you just listed, the fact that they're going to decide on their 2026 power unit supplier by the end of this year. You know, I, I think these are great bits because it shows that, you know, to, to me that they just over the last number of years, it, it seems like a lot of the moves that they've made have been reactive rather than proactive. Exactly. And, and this to completely, me completely, seems completely. like they're, like they're they're getting their business in order and they're they're doing things in the right place at the right time. And and I love hearing these things. But it's interesting how you're saying that this is like you know they're they're not expecting to do a lot this year. That this is like rebuild year, with, you know, whatever you want to call it. But I mean, it was a very positive outing. I mean, getting points in the first races or the first race, Logan's uh, you know just. Missed Missing down the points in his debut, I think that's a very positive start. Yeah, then you have Alex Albon there. You know, I guess the senior of the two drivers uh, at Williams. He said that uh, they they believe that they only only Aston Martin made bigger advances and bigger gains over the winter or the design between 22 and 23 compared to them. So I think that that that's amazing. And and I would love to see it, but you know, at the, on the flip side where Williams like, you know, improves has to be at the expense of, of, of somebody. And based on what we saw in Bahrain a couple of weeks ago, I'm, I'm very, very concerned for McLaren and for their fans, because that was not a very, very good, race piastri obviously having uh, mechanical issues lando having issues i mean how many times did lando go into the pits four five six i, I lost track so you know coupled with uh you know what was not the strongest year for them last year compared to 2021 kind of makes me wonder you know are, are the, the, the the peaks and valleys of the the, the waves that uh, both williams and mclaren riding it, it seems that uh, williams is starting on an upward trend and mclaren at least uh, what we saw a couple of weeks ago and last year seems to be i don't know if they're riding the crest of this wave and starting to go down into the trough who knows but we'll be watching that one uh, move forward okay next story let's pull up the next story so that one oh okay uh, the next one i uh, this is about lewis hamilton and some of the uh, the uh, criticism he got after bahrain and uh, you know where he leveled a little bit of um you know criticism towards uh, mercedes um so what he said and this is a quote uh, that uh, lewis gave to the the bbc checkered flag podcast after the bahrain grand prix he said quote last year i told them that there are issues with the car like i've driven so many cars in my life so i know what a car needs i know what a car doesn't need and i really think it's about accountability is about owning up and saying, yeah, you know what? We didn't listen to you. It's not where it needs to be. And we've got to work. We're still multi-world champions, you know, and it just they just haven't gotten it right this time. They didn't get it right last year, but that doesn't mean we can't get it right moving forward. End quote. 
So Lewis has kind of uh, walked those uh, you know comments back at one of the the, the pressers in advance of the uh, the Saudi Grand Prix this weekend. Lewis had to say, "quote I mean, in hindsight, I think looking back, it wasn't necessarily the best choice of words. Of course, there are times where you're not in agreement with certain team members, but what is important that we com- continue to communicate, we continue to pull together. I still have 100% belief in this team, and they're my family, and I've been here a long time, so I don't plan on going anywhere else. But we all need to kick." we all need to get on we've seen the proof is in the pudding we've seen where the performance is and how people are extracting the performance and and we've got to start making some bold decisions some big moves in order to close the gap to these guys end quote you know i i don't i didn't find lewis's comments after bahrain you know you know out of order Uh, i i find it refreshing when when People speak their minds as, as somebody that, uh, you know, dealt speaking with, uh, you know, athletes and, you know, team coaches and staffers, et cetera, over the years. There's nothing more that, you know, that, that I would, you know, get frustrated about is the generic, you know, metaphor or cliche riddled non-answer, right? It's just like, you know, tell, tell us what you really think about whatever. And I, I think Lewis just vocalized, verbalized what we all knew what was what was going on anyways. He didn't throw anyone under the bus per se. He oh, Toto didn't listen or Bono doesn't listen. You know, these guys don't know what they're doing. He kind of like threw it out there. You know, he did say they rather than we. So, I mean, you can maybe just, you can take a little bit out of that. But I, I don't think the comments were out of line. I, I don't even think he really needed to walk them back in Saudi Arabia. So, so for me, I think this is a, a bit of a non-issue. Okay, now this is a fun one. Next one. So uh, London, the city of London in England, of course, has pitched a potential new race venue uh, in an area of the city which is going to extensive redevelopment. So they're looking at maybe uh, building a track or having a race at the, the London Docklands. But Hammy, this one seems like this might be a bit of a non-starter. Hey, definitely. And it's a story that seems to resurface every few years. And back in the Bernie Eccleston days, I know he aspired. And to be fair, he aspired to have races at every corner of the globe if they were willing to pay some money. And the backdrop was pretty. But there was a time when <laughs> exactly. Bernie was very clear that he wanted to have a race in central London that would skip right in front of Buckingham Palace, etc. But ultimately, none of that was to be. And it never happened. And now a new group, a new group is pitching the idea like you described of a Formula One Grand Prix near central London. So certainly not in central London itself. So not necessarily with the backdrop that we would all expect, but their hope is that they would be able to transform the riverfront area in East London um, as put forward by the LDN Collective, a group of built environmental experts and consultancy firm DAR. Uh, As part of their bid, and this is reading from motorsport.com, as part of their bid to create a globally recognized waterfront destination for sports, leisure, and entertainment, they envision a London Grand Prix based at a high-speed street circuit. The suggested three 3.64 mile route would feature 22 corners at an average speed of 127 miles per hour to create an estimated lap time of one minute and 42 seconds. But like you said, this may all be for naught because ESPN is reporting that F1 is absolutely not considering a London race despite the 
proposal. So it's a cool idea. It's very, very neat. It would be awfully fun as a one and done, but it sounds like Formula One has no desire to host a race on the streets of London, especially with the immense amount of demand globally that there is currently to host a Formula One race. And the fact that we're already at 23, 24 races, but very quickly, Formula One group poo-pooed the idea, and we probably won't hear a lot more about this unless that group is very, very serious and is willing to pay that 50 or $60 million a year fee. But the other thing that I've read is that when Silverstone did re-up their agreement in 2019, I think it was maybe the last time they revisited the contract with Liberty, that they had put some very strict protective language in the contract about a second Grand Prix. Because there's always, there's always rumors that, hey, a promoter will put a race in another track in the UK or in London. But by all accounts, Silverstone has some very, very strict language in their agreement about a second race taking place in the United Kingdom. So for now, it looks neat, cool. Check out the renderings, but probably not a reality. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's pretty out there what uh, some of the uh, you know, proposals are of it, uh, including uh, it'd be 250 million pounds to get this uh, thing up and running. It would have floating grandstands and the first floor of the XL Center would be used as the pit lane. So, you know, it's, it sounds pretty outlandish, but uh, the other yeah, renderings are definitely very cool. So head on over to uh, motorsport.com and check that out because it does uh, look uh, pretty spectacular. But the one thing I think for, for you and I, which I think is kind of cool is that you know they were they're they're kind of likening to you know if they could pull this off the the one direct comp that they'd have is that this London Docklands circuit would be you know like not a carbon copy but it'd be very very similar to what we see on uh, Il Notre Dame in Montreal for the for the Canadian Grand Prix at Circuit Gilles Villeneuve which is uh, which is very very cool which I actually got a chance to go and visit last summer not for the race but it was very cool to to see just geographically how it is out there in the middle of the St. Lawrence uh, seaway so this is this is a cool concept but yeah it doesn't sound like it's going to happen anytime soon or if it's going to happen at all so uh miami now so they're aiming to have some uh, more overtaking opportunities or boosts whatever you, you want to call it uh by just uh, throwing a couple little um, what they call minor track uh, changes so last year i mean it was a decent race. I mean, it, it was a good first try, but I don't think that it would be, you know, out of line to suggest that it didn't really, that the, the spectacle we saw on the track wasn't really what we were expecting with all, all the hype. I mean, there was the, the issues with the tires and the, 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 the track surface, which, you know, they've uh, tried to address, but now uh, they've uh, decided to go and make a couple of uh, little uh, differences, uh, you know, to, to really help improve the, the, the racing on the track. So Tyler Epp, who is the president of the Miami Grand Prix uh, revealed in a what was an exclusive interview with the RacingNews365.com. And uh, the quote is as follows, uh, quote, we decided that we were going to take the top layer of the tarmac off the track. We worked with uh, track designers, Tilka, and developed an aggregate that we thought would work very well. And that last section was laid yesterday. So this is uh, from a, an article from earlier this week. Anyways, Ep goes on to say, quote, so we have a complete racetrack. We still have to go through the final 
traditional fishing processes, which work through the next six weeks, but it will be ready to go come early May. Uh, there are no significant uh, changes to the overall layout, but we did listen to the Drivers' Council, the FIA, and Formula regarding the chicane at turns 13, 14, and 15. We've changed some rumble strips along with the, the Tech Pro barrier positioning, but the position is dictated by the FIA. I believe they're also working on the turn of or the apex of turn 15. This won't be noticeable to the viewer, but it will have a slight impact to try and improve racing through that section. We went back and talked to our partners at the FIA and Formula One, and they were f- fantastic about providing us very fair feedback on last year. Largely, we were really very happy with what happened, end quote. So, you know, like I say, I, I think last year's race was didn't quite uh, lived up to all of our expectations, but I love the fact that, uh, that they've taken this criticism. They've uh, obviously put in a lot of time and money to try and figure it out. And, you know, the, you know, when, when you see a race organizer like Miami going through all this effort to do these these changes, some are minor, like, you know, just uh, you know, improving, uh, you know, like uh, the, the, the chicane, you know, uh, some of the things like rumble strips and things like that. Those those are minor things. But when it comes to things like, you know, like the track surfacing and working with like the track designers to come up with like a, a venue specific aggregate for the asphalt that they're going to put down around there that shows to me that this is an organizer that is not just there to make a quick buck like they they actually seem to me interested in having a very very good uh, rate or trying to to you know set conditions that will lead to more exciting racing hammy your thoughts yeah it's super promising and you and i have talked so much the past three or four years about the fact that race organizers are investing in the tracks to increase the spectacle we've seen it at yas and we've seen it now in spain and we've seen it at albert park and we've seen it in jeddah which we'll speak to in a couple of minutes ago but here in in miami you know what the the ingredients were good the first year, but the final product wasn't perfect. And it's nice that they're going back and they're addressing some of the concerns because there certainly were criticisms of the racing and of the aggregate and of the surface. And obviously there wasn't great racing off the start because there wasn't a lot of grip. So it's good that they're willing to make some pretty significant capital investments. The other big change that they're introducing for Miami is less on the track. It's more on the other side of the fence, but there was also a huge amount of criticism from fans that that attended the race, both those in general admission who had real trouble accessing bathrooms in shade and water. And that might sound pretty basic, like shade and water, but it was 32 degrees and blisteringly hot. And likewise, those fans that spent an absolute fortune on hospitality accesses were mm-hmm. not a cut were well, I would say maybe not um, blessed with the abundance of food and, and drinks and pleasantries that maybe they were expecting. So by all accounts, the the Miami GP race organizers have been very clear that they acknowledge all of these issues and they're going to be doing things to improve the experience for the campus pass, which is their general admission ticket holders, plus all those that pay for hospitality accesses. The other cool thing that's going to happen this year is they're going to move the hospitality aspects of the paddock into the center of Hard Rock Stadium. So people will actually be able to sit in the stands of Hard Rock Stadium, which of course where the Miami Dolphins play, and look down at the field and see all of the the hospitality complexes that the teams erect for a race weekend. So cool that they're going to continue to invest and hopefully uh, hopefully we'll have a great race this year, which again, at this point, man, is two months away, less than two months away. It's coming so fast. 
Oh, yeah, I know, right? I mean, it, it is coming really, really quick. And, uh, you know, we were just talking a little bit earlier about how uh, not so long ago we saw Silverstone re-sign or re-up uh, their, their deal with Formula One to host the British Grand Prix um, there for several more years. It was announced uh, this week uh, from uh, F1 uh, CEO Stefano Domenicali that uh, the Austrian Grand Prix at the Red Bull Ring in Spielberg will be on the calendar at least until 2027 uh, under the new agreement. Uh, that uh, that they've assigned uh, didn't uh, expand on how much longer it could stay beyond that. So we're going to be going back uh, for at least another several years. And I, I, I like this track. You know, I know it's it's short compared to some of the other I ones. I mean, you got like, your spas. You've got your Bakus that are you know, like sort of like one minute fifty, almost two minutes for a lap compared to, to the Red Bull Ring, which is what about a one hundred five or a one hundred six, definitely sub one minute ten seconds. But it's it's a cool uh, track. I mean, it's got some fast sections, it's got some twisty sections, it's got like a a huge change in elevation as you go around the the, the circuit itself. Stunning views. Glad to see this one stay on the calendar for at least uh, another several years. Now, now another one, and um, well, we've we we were looking at this, I guess, in the last it was within the last year, and it seemed at one point it almost seemed like a bit of a foregone conclusion that Formula One would be going back to Africa, specifically to Kailami in South Africa, where they haven't been since what the early nineteen mid nineteen nineties or something like that. So it seemed like this time last year or summer of twenty twenty two that that there there was a lot of smoke there, right? So it seemed like that this was almost going to be, I would say, inevitable. That it really felt like that there there was going to be be an official announcement. It never came. And apparently um, now Jody Schechter, uh, former world champion, uh, has revealed why it hasn't, uh, you know, they came really close, but they fell short. He told uh, TotalMotorsport.com the following quote, I was an inside part of it. My nephew worked on it for six years. It was that close. The guy from Kailami went from 500,000 to 2 million and he wanted to take the whole thing over. F1 came over to sign. He had got a government backing. Some of the wealthiest people in South Africa behind it. Everything was in place, and the guy from Kailami got greedy. Just as soon as F1 left, he changed the whole thing completely. The government realized there was a fight going on and withdrew, and that was not the end. Maybe it will happen here again. I don't know. End quote. So... Sounds like the was it the owner of the track or the race organizer sounds that like he tried to you wanted too big of a cut, too big a piece of the pie. Is that basically what it came down to? I mean, the he, he, like Schechter kind of says, but at the same time, he doesn't get too specific. He left it sufficiently vague for people like us to try and fill in the blanks. Hey, eh, Mark, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> we're to that point. Let's take another. Let, let's take another Motor break because we're going to come back. Motor GP. Motor GP. GP quarter. So we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit of the motorcycles in just a moment. So don't go away. We will be right back. Welcome to another edition of MotoGP Corner. Joining you today on our MotoGP special is myself, Mark Hamilton, and I'm going to talk a little bit of MotoGP. 
Paul Espargaro, the longtime MotoGP racer, has outlined in an article on Crash.net some of the differences in bike configuration for the new sprint races that are being introduced as part of the MotoGP calendar this year. So MotoGP is going all in on sprint races this year. And when I say they're going all in, I mean there will be sprint races every single weekend of the year. So they're going to be dropping one of their, I think, 500 practice sessions each weekend and sticking in a sprint race. Now, originally, there was a lot of controversy because MotoGP is an incredibly physically demanding championship, much more so even than Formula One in a lot of ways. Drivers risk themselves, they come off the bike, they slide, they get clipped. It's very dangerous and can be a very painful sport. But they will be introducing sprint races and it's hoped that this is going to amplify coverage and get some media attention for a sport that is really struggling at the moment in in a lot of their key markets like the UK where they're really set struggling to sell tickets but Paul Spargo talks about the fact that they are going to be doing some very cool things with the bikes specifically for these sprint races. The first thing that we're going to discover is that the bikes will have 45% less fuel, which only makes sense, right? Like if you're running a shorter distance, you don't need as much fuel, but they are going to be running a modified fuel tank to keep the smaller fuel load in an optimum position. So again, if you have the big full-size tank and less fuel, that fuel tends to slosh around, which is an ideal. On a bike, that fuel tank sits at the top and they're going to be running a smaller, more compact tank, which will also impact the aerodynamics. Now, the other cool thing is engine performance and traction control electronics will also be tuned much more aggressively for a sprint race. And perhaps even more thrilling, the tire endurance will be much less of a concern because you're going to be running a shorter distance. You can run a far more aggressive setup, says Paul Spargaro. The bike is going to feel very different. Just starting with half the weight of a full fuel tank, for sure, you're going to feel a big difference. And writes Crash.net, tire difference is said to be another major variable, with most riders expected to use the softest rear option for the sprint before switching to the harder compound for the Sunday race. While preserving tire performance is critical in a full-length race, even the soft rear tire should be able to withstand a serious abuse during the sprint races, says Paul. You don't need to care about tire management when there's only half of the race distance. You can burn more of the tire because the tire efficiency is not going to drop so much. So if you are interested in the MotoGP, I'm thrilled. I love it. Mark Mark Marquez should be back at full strength this year. We should see a really great championship, but it's also going to be cool to check out what a sprint race looks like versus a typical MotoGP Grand Prix. More aggressive setup, less fuel, less weight. The drivers are going to be pushing harder. The bike setup is going to be more aggressive. Should be very cool. Very excited. And I'm going to bring up the dates here, but the championship is about to start anytime. They've had their preseason testing in Malaysia. They've had their preseason testing in Portugal. And the first race of the season is coming up very shortly. I don't have the date in front of me, so I sound like an imbecile, but I promise you it's coming quick. (laughs) Hey, Mark, I got a question for you. Why is MotoGP struggling a little bit in some of their key traditional markets. Do you have any intel on that? I think a big part of this is the... 
I think one dynamic pricing, yeah, dynamic pricing for starters. Although I think with MotoGP right now, the dynamic pricing might be to bring the ticket prices down rather than put them up. Yeah, maybe. But right? I think a big part of it is that Valentino Rossi was the transcendent superstar that carried this sport for years and years, and he's now been retired for a couple of years. And even in the in the last four or five years of his career, where maybe he wasn't contending consistently for podiums and race wins, he was still a massive, massive draw. And MotoGP's never had a transcendent talent of of his size and i think they've really struggled to to fill that gap and then i think the other big piece too is you can probably criticize dorna so Dorna is to MotoGP what Liberty is to Formula One, and the FIM is FIM is to MotoGP what the FIA is to Formula One. And I just I don't think Dorna's done a good not job or good enough job of unlocking access to the sport in a lot of major markets. In Canada, it's all but impossible to find the sport. And if you want to subscribe to MotoGP's F1 TV Pro equivalent. It's a small fortune. Like the price is incredibly high. So they've done a very poor job of making the sport accessible to a wider audience. And at the same time, they don't have the same transcendent, um, highly appealing, charismatic, compelling riders on the bikes that they did in years past. So hopefully Mark Marquez will will be a spark that will regenerate some of the energy. But yeah, it's not necessarily in a great place right now. Although the quality of the riding, the quality of the racing is still exceptional. So if I wanted to get access to MotoGP's version of F1 TV Pro, what would that cost me here in Canada? Yeah, so it's called the MotoGP Video Pass. and I'm going to bring it up real quick. Um, I believe it starts around... I think it starts around $150 to $200 Canadian, Ooh, whereas I think you and I are paying around, I think, $79, bucks, 70 Some, yeah, bucks for a about full- that. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's nothing. Like, you and I are basically paying three bucks a race for F1 TV Pro, which is a steal, oh, an yeah. absolute steal. But on the MotoGP side, it's many hundreds of dollars relative to uh, relative to F1 TV Pro. That That is surprising. Like, you know, like, not that I want form, uh, Formula One to jack up the prices on, on F1 TV Pro, but- I'm surprised that the price point to get into the the MotoGP version is is basically double that, if if not more. That's that's actually quite shocking. Yeah, and MotoGP tried to piggyback on the success of Drive to Survive. They they did a very similar product on Amazon Prime called MotoGP Unlimited. It's it's good. It's totally worth checking out. But I think where it falls where it falls down versus drive to survive is they don't capture the personality of the drivers quite as effectively as they do the the personalities of the drivers and the team principals in in drive to survive so they've got some work to do dorna certainly has some work to do it's a spectacular product the on the track product is fantastic they've got to find a better way to market it and make it more compelling yeah, to a absolutely. Broader audience. okay well let's get into the discussion now about uh, this weekend's uh saudi arabia grand prix third running now at Jeddah, like <laughs> this is to me kind of like blows my mind because it doesn't seem like all that long ago mark that we were sitting here looking at like video sims and and renderings of what it would be like to go around a lap of Jeddah. <clears throat> 
And here we go, 2023. This is the third time that we've been back to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia for this event. And uh, it seems every time that we've gone back after the initial running in 2021, that there's slight tweaks and modifications. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, the news that kind of broke uh, middle of this week is that uh, Max Verstappen is uh, was running late to get to this event. Uh, he'd uh, been granted uh, an extra day at home by the FIA because uh, he'd been suffering with a stomach bug uh, earlier this week. It's been confirmed that he's actually feeling fine. He just needed another day to rest and recover. Uh, Max had uh, said, um, uh, quote, feeling fine again after not being fit for a few days because of a stomach bug. Therefore, I unfortunately had to postpone my flight for a day, so I won't be on the track until Friday. See you in Jeddah. So that's uh, what Max had to say. Um, So let's some of the other news. So here we go, one race into the the season, and Ferrari have already (laughs) they've already confirmed that they're going to fit another control electronics power unit component to Charles Leclerc's Ferrari. They get what like I think the allowance is three per season. No, you two. Know, Charles it's didn't two. even make it through. It's, it's, two. it's only two. Yeah, oh like, my this goodness. Is, I thought it was yeah, three. So this wow. is a crazy story. So we we talked last yeah. week, of course, about Charles Leclerc's DNF. And I think the understanding at that point was that it was the battery store failure. So Charles Leclerc has actually, oh no, you're right. Sorry, my mistake. Control electronics. I, I'm actually bringing up the, the, uh, the regulations here. So battery store two, control electronics two. So he's already on his second battery store. So the battery store is just the fancy way of saying the battery where all wow. that energy from the MGUs yeah. go. But the control electronics is also two and he's already on his third. So that's where the 10 place grid penalty is coming from. Now, the control electronics are the... I heard it described on F1 TV Pro earlier as the brains of the power unit. And there's actually a couple of different control electronic modules within this master module and they control the MGUs, they control the transfer of power and they control the actual internal combustion engine themselves. So it was some piece of this that has failed, which is why he's now on his third control electronics of the year, which is crazy. And, you know, I was listening to F1 TV Pro earlier today when I was putting away the groceries and they made a really good point. There's nothing to make us think that they've solved the problem, that the control electronics live on top of the power unit, which is, or they live on top of the power store, which is embedded under the fuel tank in a very, very, very challenging place to operate. And that given that we're only two weeks out from Bahrain, all they could conceivably have done at this point is taken a replacement component off the shelf and stuffed it in the car. So there's reason for Carlos Sainz to worry. And there's certainly reason for uh, drivers in other Ferrari powered cars to worry as well, because they would be rocking the same control electronics as part of that power unit package. But yeah, you're, you're entitled to two energy stores per season before you start accumulating penalties and you're entitled to two control electronics per year before you start accumulating batteries and of course Charles Leclerc is now on his second battery store and he's on his third control electronics which is bananas well, I, I know that that's the crazy thing. He told Sky Sports F1 uh, earlier this week, quote, we had two control unit problems in Bahrain, which means that we already need to take a penalty. We understand these problems, but as a result, I obviously need to take the penalty. I don't think the, the first two ECUs are reusable. We don't have confirmation yet, but I don't think so, end quote. So, uh, I mean, Charles is already saying that one race into the season, he's already basically burned through his allowance for the season. So if that's the 
the case, Charles will probably be taking more grid penalties as time goes on throughout uh, the season. Okay, so let's go over to SBN.com uh, right now. This is a story from their F1 editor, Lawrence Edmondson, and the article is five key questions ahead of the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix. So the first question from Lawrence is, one, is Red Bull's advantage as big as it looks? Number two, can Aston Martin challenge for victory? Three, will McLaren improve? Four, what's next for Mercedes? And five, what is going on at Ferrari? Mark, where do you want to start on Lawrence's five burning questions ahead of the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix? Yeah, let's start right. Let's start with, right with the stop. So, is Red Bull's advantage as big as it looks? So of course, they decimated the field in Bahrain. They decimated the field. They did an exceptional job. They finished one two. It was never in question that that was going to be the outcome. But the track, in a lot of ways, could be described as being tailor made for them and their car and their package and their rate of tire degradation. Jetta's different. Jetta is a very, very, very different track than Bahrain in, in so many ways. It is an incredibly high-speed track with a very, very different surface. It's also test drivers in a fundamentally different way. And I remember back a couple of years ago, Nico Rosberg described the track as quote unquote nuts. <laughs> and he it described yeah. it as extreme and he described it as, as dangerous. And I think the good news, and we, we can talk a little bit in a minute about some of the changes that they've made, but in the spirit of that conversation, you and I were having a couple of minutes ago about race organizers continuing to modify and update and, and change their track is they've received an immense amount of feedback from the Grand Prix Drivers Association about just how dangerous this track can be, especially given that it's so high speed and given that so many of the corners are blind, that they've done an awful lot of work to continue to push those walls back and create a little bit of space and open up some of those sight lines. But I just, I can't imagine the outcome is going to be significantly different. Now, one of the things that people did pick up on is that Ferrari did have a higher top speed. While they're still on the track, they did have a higher top speed than did Red Bull at Bahrain. But the question is, was that a byproduct of Red Bull toning it down and turning down the power units to preserve components so they take less grid penalties as the season progresses? Or is there really more top-end power in that car? And you know, Christian Horner and Helmut Marko were asked earlier this week about their thoughts regarding the power unit, and they conceded that possibly you know, the Ferrari power unit does have an edge over the Honda-supplied power unit that they're rocking this year. But that could also just be gamesmanship as well, and it's probably too early to say. But given the nature of this track, provided they don't have any reliability issues, I would assume that the gap between Red Bull and the gap between Ferrari especially shouldn't be as drastic and exaggerated as it was in Bahrain. And the other reason being as well that the Ferraris really struggle with tire degradation and Bahrain is not a high degradation track. It is not punishing in terms of the aggregate and it is not punishing in terms of the load on the tires through some tighter complex high-speed corners that this should be a track that much better suits Ferrari than did Bahrain. That's all I got on that one. Your thoughts? Do you think that Red Bull's advantage will be more obvious or less obviously? Well, I mean, th that is uh, the, the $64,000 question. Let's not forget that uh, in the two previous um, races that we've seen here, we've had a lot of drama. The first year it was uh, between Max and, and Lewis. There was a lot of things going on that was kind of like right at the, the, the sort of the 
peak in their battle. But then also last year, remember, we had those last was about 10 laps or so with uh, Charles and Max going head to head. And that was very, very exciting. That had us all jumping out of our seats, uh, you know, watching that uh, exciting finish uh, to, to, to that race. So I think it will be a good indication one way or another, just like what's, you know, how big is Red Bull's advantage, if any. The Again, and I feel like I'm a bit of a broken record here, is that my, my big concern with Ferrari is that the car is made out of glass. I mean, we just spent five minutes talking about, you know, Charles already going through his, uh, basically his season's allowance of ECUs <laughs> at, at the first race of the year. So, you know, reliability and quality control of parts and components on the car still seems to be an issue. And I, I think that that's probably what, you know, could let Ferrari down on Sunday, that if that delta between them and Red Bull is smaller than it was in Bahrain two weeks ago, and we see a situation like we did at this race last year, where you know it, it basically comes down to Charles and Max or or whoever, which you know Sergio and 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 Carlos, you know it, it could be all for naught if you're Ferrari because we we've seen over time that the Red Bull tends to be a very very reliable car, and the Honda engine is a very very reliable engine, and I mean it's just overall you know you couple that with the fact that it's a very powerful and competitive power unit and the 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 chassis the design of the rb19 it's just fundamentally a good car i mean you got checking so many good boxes there that it's like yeah advantage red bull compared it to compared to ferrari is like the car has a lot of uh, potential but and then you go kind of down the list of all the the different areas where ferrari's had issues over the you know the last well while let's put it that way so yeah i think that i think the gap to sort of wrap this one up i think it'll be smaller but i think red bull still has an edge over ferrari so number two can aston martin challenge for victories that is a very tantalizing and very juicy question i i don't know if they're quite there just yet and i'm certainly not willing to go out on that limb just yet either i mean they had a very very good race in bahrain i mean fernando looked very quick lance looked very quick they had a double points finish which is something that they haven't been able to really consistently pull off over the past uh, couple of years so in that kind of like fishbowl that was the first race of the season I think it was excellent. It, it's what you and I have been wanting to see from this team for the last couple of years, and they've done nothing but let us down every time we thought that something was coming. So, you know, but but props to them. It, it was good. I think that they're definitely one of those teams that's, you know, they're in the conversation for being, I would say, uh, you know, like like a, uh, a a championship contender. But I think that we, we they definitely have been elevated to on their day i think they have a good chance of winning a race but they might need some circumstances to go their way maybe it's maybe it's weather maybe it's safety car you know i i don't think that they can beat teams like ferrari and red bull straight up at the moment but you know, as this season unfolds, we'll find out how legit the AMR 23 is. We'll find out what, how, how much Fernando still has in the tank, how much potential or how much realized potential Lance has. So there's a lot to be excited about, but I, I still have questions about Aston Martin. Let's put it that way. 
Fernando Alonso's race craft was absolutely on full display a couple of weekends ago in, in Bahrain, and I couldn't yeah, be happier 100%. to see it. And, and it's funny too, man, because I really doubted I really doubted where Sebastian Vettel was uh, emotionally, mentally, and physically when he was piloting the Aston Martin for a couple of years there. But I never questioned what Fernando Alonso was going to bring, and I think he, I think he silenced any doubters, if there were any doubters. But it also took, despite his exceptional racecraft, it also took a unique circumstance for him to get on the podium. Right? That ultimately, I'm not going to suggest it was gifted because we ultimately don't know how Charles Leclerc was going to manage those tires in the last 15 laps of that race or whatever was left but ultimately you know he got on the podium because of a ferrari dnf and you know what things like that happen but i do agree with your point that i think if aston martin is going to find their way to the top of a podium this year there's probably going to be some unique circumstances that lead to that moment happening that they're not going to win a race this year on outright pace simply because they don't have the pace of of the red bulls nor have they demonstrated the reliability of the red bulls they look great they're going to be awesome and they're going to absolutely cash in on a ton of points as you were talking, though, something occurred to me. Uh, do you think Aston Martin is more or less likely than Mercedes to score a Grand Prix victory this year? That's, and not to deviate from the questions at hand, but interesting question. Yeah, that that is an interesting question. Like, uh, obviously, there there are lots of more questions <laughs> when it comes to Mercedes and and where they're going to go with the with, with the the um, the W14. I mean, we 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 talked about you know, Lewis's comments earlier. We talked uh, in recent weeks just the fact that they have a Plan B on the drawing board at at Brackley that they could basically get this thing up and running. Should they have to deviate and and finally leave this side podless car concept and go to something completely different? They're all ready to do that. It, just what what I've seen over the past year, and is uh, we've seen uh, Aston Martin kind of like creep up the the performance charts, and Mercedes kind of like struggle. I would say at this point, I, I think that they're they're both as likely as each other to be able to score a win at some point the, this season because. I, as we just laid out here, Mark, we, we think that Aston Martin potentially could win a race this year, but they'll need some help. And oddly, and this seems so counterintuitive to say so, unless Mercedes can uncork the potential they think the W14 has, or they go to a completely different concept, which they say they have and they're ready to introduce and prepared to introduce, I think that they're going to need some help to win a race, be it weather or safety cars or some sort of extenuating circumstances, which seems just, you know, I, I can't even believe I said the quiet part out loud. I mean, it, it's like something I never actually thought I would say about Mercedes considering how dominant that they, they've been. But I, I think that, um, yeah, they, 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 they both are as likely as each other to win a race this year, but they're going to need some help along the way. Now, we, we talked about a little bit earlier when we were talking about uh, uh, Williams. We figured that Williams is kind of like riding the crest of, well, you know, riding an upward trend, and McLaren is struggling a little bit. So, Lawrence's next question for Saudi is McLaren going to improve? You know, man, I've got my doubts, you know, just like a lot of the things that we've heard coming out of Woking, you know, from from people like Zach Brown, Andrea Stella, the drivers that that they they're not expecting any real big boosts in performance until that that upgrade package comes. And that's still a couple to several races away. So I'm afraid if you're a fan of the papaya colored uh, uh, McLaren cars, I think that, uh, you know, buckle up, you know, they're going to be hitting 
getting a patch of turbulence here, at least for, for a couple of races. And then from there, it's just a question, are, are the upgrades going to be enough? Is it going to deliver the performance they need? And I guess more to the point, if it does, and it does improve the car, how does that compare to all the other teams around them like and the, and the gains and the the upgrades that they're going to introduce to their their cars so i i've i've got my i've got my doubts about mclaren at the moment they've got to to prove to be quick that uh, that they're going to get this thing pointed in the right direction because i don't think it's they're going in a good a good way at the moment is is the mclaren can i say this is the mclaren hype train stopped like is it over did it fall off <laughs> did it fall off the track because this is a team that had garnered so much goodwill with formula one teams and there was oh, so huge. many people yeah. buying lando norris stock and you know you, you you certainly saw it last year and i think we were all quick to point to daniel ricardo and suggest that hey he was the reason they didn't finish higher in the constructors championship and that lando norris is the next the next coming of max verstappen and there was so much praise being heaped on on zach brown for the turnaround at woking and for lando norris for being such an exceptional or such an exceptional young driver that this team seems rudderless now that I'm not I'm not sure where they are in the development cycle of this car they seem to be actively regressing and if you remember during the car reveal uh, about a month ago six weeks ago now whatever it was during the car reveal Zach Brown and I, I commented on this at the time because I thought he was simply trying to to soften expectations for what might be a weak start to the season. But he was very candid about the fact that, hey, don't expect big things from McLaren early on. And clearly, clearly he was on the mark in terms of what he knew about where this car was in terms of its development. But it's just, it's seemingly shocking and we're one race in. It's early. It's super early. But we're one race into the season and they seem to be to my earlier point, rudderless. Like I, I don't know where they are in their development journey. They brought in Oscar Piastri because he was the young rookie driver that they thought was going to help them to contend for constructors championships. And the team just seems seemingly, at least from a development perspective, lost. And, you know, obviously Oscar Piastri last race retired after just lap 15 laps. Lando Norris finished last of the finishers and had to make six stops because he was having issues with the pneumatic pressure on his car. Like we didn't learn a lot about McLaren. And if you unpack what we learned in winter testing, it doesn't look, it doesn't look great. And I'm very curious to see how forgiving Formula One fans will be because I think a lot of the fans that have taken to McLaren are fans that are new to the sport. And I'm very curious to see how forgiving they're going to be if this is going to be a really challenging season for this team. And at the same time, like I've, I've never been the biggest Lando fan. I certainly I certainly haven't bought stock in Lando Norris and I haven't bought a condo on Lando Norris Island that I think there's probably a lot, a little too much hype there. But at the same time, I also think it's going to be an interesting story to see Oscar Piastri possibly, potentially with a team this year that could finish in the bottom eight, nine, ten of the championship when he could alternatively gone to Alpine, which while they struggled and they didn't have a great initial Grand Prix, they look miles better than, than, then does McLaren. So will McLaren improve? They can't not improve on Bahrain, but will they be contending for points every race weekend? I don't know, man. Yeah, that that's a great point. So so let us put it this way: like unlike you, I I do have a fairly you know very positive um, opinion of Lando, but I I do recognize that the 
that the McLaren hype train is definitely slowed down. I don't know if it's actually come to a stop. Let, let's put it this way. Once you know people start selling their condos on Lando Norris Island and we start getting some neighbors here on Lance Stroll Island, that I'll be completely convinced that, that the, the McLaren hype train has come to a, a stop and the wheels have fallen off. But certainly the signs don't, uh, don't, don't look good. So the next one on Lawrence's list, number four, is what's next for Mercedes? I, I don't know if we need to dive into this one. I feel like yeah, we, I think we, we talked, talked about, about it that. already. Yeah. That's, yeah, when we were talking about uh, Aston Martin. So the last one on Lawrence's uh, list of uh, five burning questions out of uh, the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix is what's going on at Ferrari. Yeah, yeah. Honestly, Lawrence and everyone else, I don't know why. (laughs) I mean, it just seems to be a little bit kind of like par for the course that, you know, Ferrari seem to be their own worst enemies. I mean, of course... 2023 is not 2022 we're we're one race into what a 23 race season there there's a long way to go uh you know you know frederick vasseur he's only been on the job in a couple of months how are you going to make those institutional changes and 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 really have them bear fruit in such a, a short amount of time as we've almost said at you know spoke about ad nauseum on this episode is just the fact that charles has burned through his uh, season allotment of ecus in one race so you know quality control is 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 a concern i i thought the tactics on the pit wall were a little bit better last week but but my my main concern everyone is just uh, again it's the, the the car i feel like the car is made out of glass and i feel like if they push it a little bit more than they should it's just like sure the car is fast but you know the you know that <laughs> those there, there's there's a pretty finite line in the sand it's pretty obvious that if they push it too fast and or too hard to try and get it to where they want it to be is not where the car is comfortable and going and i, I think that's just evident just what we saw with charles and bahrain and take any example from last year that <laughs> that's that's where i feel that they're at there were a lot of articles in the Italian and Spanish press this week that I, I had to resist including in the outline for tonight's podcast. And they really struck a chord with me because they describe a scene in Marinello of pretty significant discord amongst the team that there are folks within the team that are trying to work around Frederick Vasseur and they're going straight to executives at Ferrari that executives at Ferrari are getting far more involved with the operation of the Formula One team than we would expect. Obviously, last week we talked about the fact that David Sanchez exited the team after a winter in which he blanketed the rest of the grid with resumes hoping to take a job with a British-based team. Uh, There are reports as well, and I think Frederick Vasseur has actually had to answer this question about the fact that there are other folks within the organization that are unhappy and might also be looking to exit. There's a sense of discord and disruption with this team. So as much as we continue to see challenges on the track and that DNF wasn't great and the fact that poor Charles Leclerc is taking a 10 group. 10 grid place penalty in the second race of the season, which is just shocking, just shocking. There seems to be potentially much more disruptive forces at work in Marinello. So for the sake of the championship, and because some of those stories were difficult to corroborate, and a lot of it was just very gossipy, um, as is often the case in the Italian and and Spanish motorsports press, uh, hopefully, hopefully, that team can find some unifying, some unifying force and, and be able to contend this year. Because like you said, 
they've certainly got that top end power, but it's the rest of the package. It's the reliability, it's the strategy, and it's the unity at Marinello that might that might be missing. Yeah, yeah, I- I- exactly. So uh, why don't we uh, go on now and just um, give our predict our predictions for the race itself? And I, I don't think that there's, you know. We we talked last week that Max had won fifteen out of the last twenty races, sixteen of the last twenty one. I, I don't think there's anyone really challenging him. I mean, there was one question earlier this week: Is he going to be healthy enough to race? Sounds like the the, the stomach bug that he had was just a a minor and temporary inconvenience. I mean, Max is just clinical when he gets behind the steering wheel. He rarely puts a wheel wrong, like all the the, the great drivers in Formula One do. I mean, he's just too fast, too precise, too good and just based uh, on the form of run that we've seen him go on for almost an entire year and then even take it back to 2021 his first championship year it's like why why would you bet against max at at the moment there's just everything's in his favor i mean he's obviously driving in a really good place he's got a good car he's got a good power unit his team is good around him you know the pit stops at red bull are almost always faultless the strategy and the calls that they make on the pit wall or in the garage going into the race or how they you know the race evolves the, the calls that they make on the fly always seem to be on point it's just like yeah you know, why bet against them i mean i don't see why there wouldn't be another red bull one two this weekend and i know a lot of people are probably screaming at their phones at the moment say we don't want to see another repeat of red bull on the top two steps of the podium but i hate to tell you that that might just be the way it is for for, for this race but again compared to bahrain a couple of weeks ago like you said it was a, a very unique track that really lent itself to the the rbr the and and sorry the rb19 and the fact that that car was just uh, very well suited to it so this week and moving forward we'll start giving us a true in indication of where all the teams are and how the cars all all uh you know match up against uh, one another but i i would think that um what we'll see again i think we'll see uh, the two uh red bulls on the podium and i i'd love to see an aston martin up there as well ferrari i don't know too many question marks for me but i don't know where Ferrari and, and and Mercedes for that matter really kind of factor into things at the at the moment. Here's here's a couple of thoughts on this and and I want to read some quotes in a couple of seconds uh, or in a couple of seconds from Saudi Arabian Grand Prix CEO Martin Whitaker. But here's a couple of thoughts that could make this race interesting. One, the weather's going to be predictable. It's going to be warm, it's going to be dry, it's going to be relatively relatively I would say um predictable, right? We we know it's going to be a night race. The surface is going to be predictable, but what's not predictable is going to be the action on the track. Because what have we seen here? We've seen red flags and we've seen restarts and we've seen safety cars. And we didn't really see any of that at Bahrain. So in, in that sense, Max was able to build that epic lead because there was no disruptions to the Grand Prix. At this race, we could very well see a red flag. We could see we could see a restart. We could see multiple restarts. We could see multiple safety cars. And there could be circumstances that back up the field and create a more compelling TV product. So where in Bahrain, Great he had point. the opportunity to escape and get away from the field, 
that isn't such a certainty here. So while obviously the the one two Red Bull finish in in Bahrain was a bit of a foregone conclusion. While I would still put my money on Max, absolutely. Like there's no reason why you would bet against him. I'm not so certain it's necessarily going to be a Red Bull one two. And I think the outcome could be a little less certain than we've seen before because this track tends to encourage chaos. Now, all of that said, and I want to read this quote here from Martin Whitaker because they continue to amend and modify this track to to reduce the the amount of chaos. And the chaos is really generated by the fact that there's historically been no meaningful runoff error here. So if you make a mistake, you go into the wall and it's an instant safety car. If you go into the wall and it's too ugly and there's too much mess or it involves multiple cars, you get a red flag and a restart. And these things happen. But they continue to adapt and modify the track because they want to make it more amenable to the safety and to the needs and the wants of the dryers. But dryers, drivers, Martin Whitaker, like I said, the Saudi Arabian Grand Prix CEO wrote the following or was quoted as the following on the F1 Nation podcast. And he says, uh, on track, of course, there are more changes. The drivers are going to be, I think, really quite pleased because obviously the first time they get a chance to have a look will be when they walk around on Thursday. But during the winter months, we've again made some quite interesting changes to improve the sight lines. So on five of the corners, we've moved the fences back by anything between two and seven meters. So that's for our American friends, two meters is about six feet and seven meters is about 21 feet. So in some places, it's quite a marked change to the overall look and feel of the circuit. Then we've also removed the steel plates that we put on, put in on the inside of a number of the corners. The concrete barriers are effectively edged to go around a corner, so they have shoulders. So actually, the FIA said, no, we're quite happy with those. Let's remove the steel plates. We've removed those from six corners. There's a change to one of the corners. The perimeter of the track is not changed apart from in one place, and that is turn 20. 2223 that corner has been tightened so that it will make that corner probably 30 kilometers an hour slower so therefore they will be going on to effectively the back straight or that long curve between 23 and 27 they'll be entering that at a slower pace so it'll be interesting to see how that works out so lots of changes based on feedback from the GPDA, but all of that said, it is still the fastest track on the circuit in terms of average speed. Like we said last week, drivers are at full throttle in 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 a top gear for 75% of the track. And because there's no runoff area, because it's so tight, it's very likely that we could see a safety car, a red flag, a restart. So I think for those reasons, the outcome is less predictable than maybe Bahrain would be. So hopefully yeah. there's a little bit of chaos. Yep. Nobody gets hurt. We never ever want that. But hopefully there's a little bit of chaos that can bring the field back together a little bit if the race is coming apart in terms of competitive balance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, a really good uh, observation, Mark. So let's just give some uh, stats on the track itself. So we've uh, had two races here. Lewis won there in 21, Max won there last year. Circuit length is uh, 6.18 kilometers or 3.84 miles. Total race length is 308.45 kilometers or 191.66 miles. 50 laps. Last year, we had Sergio Perez on pole. The podium was Max, Charles, and Carlos Sainz. So we had a Red Bull and two Ferraris. The fastest lap was set by uh, Charles Leclerc. It was a 131.634. And the overall lap record is a 130.784. 
sorry, 734, and that was set by Lewis in 2021. So, Mark, anything else uh, you want to add uh, to this one? I think that uh, it was going to be an exciting one. I, you know, I have to admit that uh, back in the day when they first started introducing night races onto the Formula One calendar, I was always like, yeah, that seems kind of gimmicky, but like racing should be in the day. But uh, I, you know, I was quickly proven wrong. I love the night races. I think it's uh, spectacular. And, you know, this is a, a track that we've seen a lot of drama and, uh, you know, for a lot of the reasons that, uh, that you just mentioned. And the one thing that I like is despite all the drama that we've seen is that you know the, the the race organizers have been willing to make changes where they've needed to not only just to improve the racing but also for 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 safety so i'm hoping that it's going to be another dramatic exciting race for all the good reasons and hopefully we don't see a repeat of a big smash like we did last year with the uh, mick schumacher in the house so one final thing <coughs> excuse me one final a bit of information, Pirelli are bringing the mid-range of their compounds, so the C2 hard, C3 medium, and the C4 soft. So compared to the uh, circuit in Bahrain a couple of uh, weeks ago, which was on the higher end of circuit uh, uh, or asphalt abrasion, uh, we have uh, here in uh, Jeddah on the lower side, so tire degradation shouldn't be quite as pronounced as it was a couple of weeks ago. Hammy? Are you good, my friend? Anything Great. else? Or is it last time thing, that we last need to- thing, last, last thing, last thing. If you like our show, if you like what we do, if you love us, if you like M&Ms, if you like Doritos, if you like Drake, we would love if you could jump on Spotify and give us a rating. And if you listen on Apple, if you can give us a rating and a review, that would be amazing. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Yes, and thank you all, one and all, for downloading and listening to the show this week. If you want to get in touch, send us a tweet at ScooterF1Pod or an email at ScooterF1Pod at gmail.com. Thank you again for hanging out with us tonight. Big shout out to those of you that uh, joined us in the live chat on uh, the live stream on uh, YouTube. And that's it. That's a wrap. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy the race. And Mark and I will be back on Sunday night to break it all down. Until then, enjoy the race. We'll talk to you soon. Bye for now.